When you transform a global economy, the danger is that millions of people will lose their jobs. How do we make sure that that doesn't happen and how do we make sure that the green transition is a just transition? So just transition is saying if workers are older workers and they're at risk of losing their jobs, say in fossil fuels, particularly in coal, we believe that the fossil fuel companies themselves could make the transition to renewables. They have the investment, they have the platforms, they have the technology know-how. It's just a matter of decision and political will. Today I talk to Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jonsson. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I'm speaking with Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of ITUK, the International Trade Union Confederation. ITUK is a Brussels-based organization that works to promote and defend workers' rights and interests around the globe. Sharon Burrow was born in Australia and worked as a rural high school teacher prior to starting her union career. Over the last four decades, she's worked as a senior official for a number of Australian and international union organizations before she was elected as general secretary of ITUK in 2010. During her tenure, ITUK has become an increasingly important voice on climate action. ITUK is deeply committed to a just transition and is calling for measures to protect workers, their families and their communities. Hello, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining me. Good afternoon. You uh, work in ITU continuously and have done for years now with the concept of just transition. Can you elaborate a little bit for, for me and the listeners what exactly that concept means? Our world has been through many transitions. You know, some are industrial, some are political systems, some are ecological, you know, but we nevertheless have seen many systems that have simply shifted, whether it's technological change or the production sites changed, for whatever reason, and people have been left behind. Communities have been left behind. So we knew that without any question that this would be the biggest systemic change we would face, being the climate emergency. And if we didn't convince people that we had to make the journey, then it would be human beings, of course, who are at risk because that's the, the result of not having a living planet. So we decided that the only way to get trust is if people can actually see a future for themselves, hence just transition. It's actually a very simple concept. Of course, our view is that it should be established through social dialogue with unions, employers, where necessary, on uh, for community civil society and so on but if people are at the table if they see and agree to the design measures have a real voice in them then they themselves can convince people that there are jobs 
good jobs for them for their members, their members' children, and there's a future for communities. But if you have stranded assets, we know what that means for investors. But if you have stranded people, then we know what that means for divisive and despairing societies. So Just Transition is saying if workers are older workers and they're at risk of losing their jobs, say, in fossil fuels, particularly in coal, we still think, uh, you know, while we have to have no new fossil fuels, we believe that the fossil fuel companies themselves could make the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. They have the investment, they have the platforms, they have the technology know-how. It's just a matter of decision and political will. So they could still choose to transition to protect jobs. But let's say where workers lose jobs for any technological shift, then we want to know that those workers are protected with income, with skills development and with redeployment support. Indeed, your country has very good arrangements in that regard, you know, agreements between unions and uh, employers supported by government. And you know because you made a very early shift in wind that it's possible and it's possible to build good jobs, we would say good union jobs, and in fact to build not just energy stability but indeed an export capacity. And then where indeed uh, um, that's in place, we also want to see renewable um, uh, community renewal, so investment in communities. And where companies are doing the right thing, closing coal-fired power stations, for example, some are indeed investing in those communities. Others are simply walking away. That's not just transition. So when you combine just transition with human rights, then you have a capacity to convince people that not only is this a shift they need to be part of, but it's a shift that can bring hope for themselves for a secure future. Would you say that there's evidence to suggest that not only is just transition about justice and fairness, it's also about rationality because a just transition is best for the, for the whole society, for the whole economy? Absolutely. But you can't have rationality without emotional investment and uh, and trust. So you have to build both. I mean, you know, for me, I read my first IPCC report in 2000. I'd just taken over as the leader of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And uh, and I'd always been interested in the environment, but really I had no idea. It was like it was like reading a horror novel. And then every year since it's got worse. We all know that. But what we didn't see is that people were being educated around this. As a former teacher, I've just joined a movement to say climate education has to be essential in schools. But we have to actually move very quickly now to 2030, and we'll only do that if the dialogue tables produce the agreement. Now, of course, I have to say Denmark's well served on this front. We need you to be ambitious, and you are. But I not only said you've got a secure energy base in renewables and export capacity, you've now shown yourself to be a leader in a very painful but essential decision to stop all fossil fuel exploration. Everybody has to do that. We have to leave it in the ground. It's been it's served us well for generations. But there are alternate energy solutions. There are alternate industrial solutions. 
because every sector has to transition. So you're right, that's rational. And now we have to convince people it's doable and they have a part in it. No, well, thank you for mentioning that. There's, there's no doubt that if you look at it from a climate fighting climate change perspective, then obviously it's it's a rational and, and in some ways easy decision to make. But the reason why it was a quite difficult decision, of course, is that, well, it's been extremely important for our economy for decades now. Uh, and also there are thousands of jobs still in, in the offshore oil and gas sector. So really what we are aiming to do now is to make sure that these people are then trained uh, with new skills so that they can find jobs in, in renewable offshore wind, for instance, but also in other parts of the green uh, of the green transformation. Um, you have, of course, huge experience uh, talking to, to actors all over the world about this. Uh, where, do, How do you see this development happening? I'm, I'm sure there are countries where it's a big challenge and others where it's going good. We're talking about oil, we're talking about coal, we're talking about gas. Uh, face out and, and and creation of new jobs. Well, tragically, we see too few countries actually having the level of ambition and the agreements with their people, with unions, with civil society, with employers about the plan for the future. In 2015, you will recall better than anybody the hope in the world when we settled the Paris Agreement and the and the Sustainable Development Goals. We thought we genuinely had then the pathway to a zero poverty, zero carbon world. But in fact, since then, we've seen it slip to the point now where we need countries like Denmark, but indeed the whole EU to be front runners because the recovery plan in the EU based on the social pillar of rights, a green deal and just transition is exactly where we need everybody to be. So, yes, we've got good stories. We can tell you community stories, like a story in my own country, like Port Augusta, that where the community and the unions acted to move from coal-fired power station uh, energy, indeed to uh, solar thermal energy, similar skills for workers, and indeed to build new industries like uh, horticulture and agriculture um, in conservatories on the edge of the desert for the city markets. So, you know, there is, it's possible to retain, rebuild and diversify communities. Then you could go to the national agreements. Spain on coal, indeed, uh, you know, is a, a good example, or Germany or indeed Canada. But what's not yet in place in in countries is the same just transition agreement in all sectors. And now in recovery, that's what we have to do. The Just Transition Commission in Scotland is a good model and we're hoping it will take us more broadly across other sectors because if we're going to, to uh, you know, invest in a recovery that has jobs, jobs and jobs, all sectors have to have sustainable jobs. You're not talking about green jobs anymore. That was a novelty in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Now we're talking about all jobs. Indeed, in the in the US, a nice uh, Danish story is in the US, Orsted, which of course is an energy company you know well, has signed an MOU with the uh, building unions in the US about good quality jobs with a dialogue uh, base. Now, that's a real breakthrough. 
because we need many more European companies to step up in Europe but also around the world and take on those principles because that's the way we build trust. So lots of good stories, lots of small stories and some national agreements. But in the next five years, we have to not just get a commitment to just transition, we have to see it implemented. Yes, and we also, I guess, have to make sure that when we talk about just transition that we're actually talking about what you and I are are deliberating around now, which is also a concept that includes uh, social dialogue, uh, organized uh, labor, because far too often I think that that when, when some decision makers mention just transition, for them it's mostly and primarily a question about funding and money. So, and which is fair, that's also a point that, you know, okay, in the European Union, for instance, uh, some countries have a more difficult time than others, so it's fair that other countries help them financially and all of that. I'm not against that. I'm just saying that's only one part of a just transition. More importantly, actually, and unfortunately not so much in focus always, is the ability to actually make this a real social movement. And you can only do that via dialogue. Absolutely. And, of course, you need uh, investment. Where you have uh, well-established social protection systems, where you have uh, well-established, you know, flex security in your country, but support for, you know, skilling and redeployment, where you have a trust that the labour market is robust and that there's a, a collective bargaining base to keep it that way, then you're in a different situation. Where you don't have those things, yes, there'll be a need for money to ensure exactly those equivalent, but it's not just about money. The investment is shifting in terms of what are the technologies because the industries are the same. It's still an energy industry. It's still a construction or a manufacturing sector or a, uh, you know, transport uh, sector or indeed care and other areas of the service industries. But all these sectors have to look to their technology being clean and sustainable. And in that regard, the investment will shift. It's only really a matter of certainty that takes government regulation and policy. It's a matter of innovation in many areas, but it's mostly a matter of good, secure, you know, jobs that are based on collective bargaining, minimum living wages, social protection, all of the things that developed economies like the Nordic model economies take for granted because you've built the floor. We need to build the floor in those other countries. So where jobs and where, sorry, investment is necessary to protect and make sure they're good jobs, then that's okay. But that's not the core ingredient. You're right. The political will to have the dialogue tables to design the future is in fact at the heart of how we build a just transition. Yeah, I very much agree. Now, I'd like to ask you about the current situation that we're in with with uh, an unprecedented pandemic, a terrible situation most places on, on, on the planet. Um, many people are losing their jobs. Uh, many economies are, are in a crisis, obviously. What, in your opinion, uh, can we do in order for the economies to restart, to create new employment, 
And how do we make sure that we don't risk making the same mistakes as was made in the financial crisis in 2008, where a lot of the money that went to stimulus of economies went into fossil uh, uh, technology? How do we avoid that mistake happening this time? Well, first of all, you know, we're seeing some of those mistakes repeating themselves. We're already up to about a $12 trillion spend in just protecting economies to the extent that's possible, protecting jobs, protecting wages, protecting uh, income support, health sectors, and, of course, businesses where, you know, that's possible. And yet the conditionality on business is not there mostly. The procurement principles from governments, from cities, are not there in terms of what are the products that we're buying to to create that sustainability. That has to come. But the second whole area is about financing the recovery. And in 2008-9, you know, the Labor movement felt, uh, you know, very put out because we were the biggest supporters of investing 2%, seems so little now, Minister, but 2% of the global economy into stabilising jobs. We did that willingly, knowing that it was our members' money, taxpayers' money, had to come from somewhere. But we genuinely believed that you would leverage fiscal consolidation of growth. And yet at the 2010 Toronto G20, that's how old I am, I've been to all the G20 meetings, then, uh, you know, we saw it just part ways. And Europe adopted the austerity model. And we saw the carnage for the social decimation of cuts in pensions, minimum wages, not just in Europe, but then around the world. We can't do that again. So how do we finance the recovery? Two two things from our policy. One is we need tax, not austerity, to finance the recovery. If the big digital uh, companies have actually made 41% profit just to June last uh, this year, they'll make double that by Christmas. A digital tax makes sense. You know, a corporate, uh, a minimum corporate tax makes sense within capacity for, you know, income, progressive. There's, you know, Argentina just put in place a wealth tax and for, you know, the the um, 10th, the 90th percentile and above. And, you know, it's such a small amount, 1%, but it will generate them a lot of money. Now, at the moment, it's a one-off. I know other countries, but somehow we have to find the way to do two things, finance the recovery where we can through shared prosperity of increased taxes on those who can afford to pay. We've got more billionaires than we've ever had. You know, you can't you can't spend that amount of money. You've got to give back. So let's make that happen. And then the other area is is indeed what we call patient debt. And Europe's opened the door to this. You know, if you give grants and loans that have, well, grants, yes, but loans that have a 10 year kind of payback period or more, what you're actually saying is we're prepared to invest in in patient capital and patient and manage it through patient debt. That's what we didn't do in 809. Two years after those, uh, the bond markets and the ratings ages and everybody else recalled the loans and we saw the tragedy of Greece and many other places. So I think we need to learn a fast set of lessons the debate's there, but we have to actually settle some of those understandings about how to finance the recovery and how to make it resilient. Hmm. 
Okay, another thing I want to ask you is is also uh, more specific to Europe. Uh, we've now managed actually to enhance uh, Europe's uh, uh, emission reduction target for 2030 to at least 55%. It was 40 before that. For me, that's extremely positive in the middle of, of a crisis, a pandemic, that we are able to do this. Uh, now, of course, in Denmark, our, our target is 70%, so we would have liked to see it even higher. But but I do have to admit, I hadn't thought that at least 55% was possible just a few months ago. So so I'd like to hear your evaluation on that. What will that mean for... for well, first of all, we are very, very grateful that the courage has been there to take it to 55%. Otherwise, the 2030 ambition to at least stabilise the planet and look towards the rest of the journey was not going to be possible. So that's that's a congratulations from us. But, of course, it raises the question again of transition and just transition and jobs. And so what we have to do very quickly, it, you know, and, and an example is, in fact, uh, one of the strategies you've championed, which is the wind strategy. You know, Europe's putting not just the just transition lens on the negative, but the just transition lens on the positive as well. You know, how do you have a strategy to grow renewables, create decent work, and and the more of that kind of planning for an industry future is uh, essential. But there's some difficult areas for Europe, but everybody to tackle as well. If you can transition the cement, aluminium, steel, heavy industry sectors, and we can, What is it that uh, it will take to stop the rest of the world dumping dirty steel on Europe and create stable jobs, some sort of broader adjustment mechanism? That'll be painful, but it has to be possible for Europe to set those floors to actually bring the rest of the world along the, the continuum of progress and, of course, for us, investment and jobs if they're reluctant to do so. Many other sectors, of course, you're doing similar things. And even in the circular economy, there are jobs. There are lots of jobs that we didn't consider jobs when we start to say, well, how do we redeploy, recycle production rather than simply, uh, you know, throw it away as a disposable society. So I'm excited about the possibility of the future. I'm I'm actually depressed about the lack of political will, not your own minister, but the lack of general collective political will and the lack of using procurement, you know, in our governments, our cities, our public sectors to say here's the standard, here's the basis on which we will contract uh, services or products and if you don't live up to it, you don't get the the, the contract. That changes things. So we need a regulatory frame, we need the dialogue tables, and we need a mind shift on investment so that all investment has to have a green or sustainable lens. Great points, Sharon. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me in this uh, podcast. I I hope to see you soon, even though traveling is a little bit difficult these days. Well, thank you for your leadership, and uh, you know, keep keep kicking the goals, Denmark. We will. Thank you so much. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.